Hello, everyone, and thank you for listening to this episode of the Refold Podcast, where we talk about everything related to language learning. My name is Clayton, also known as George Pig, and I manage the community here at Refold. Today is our guest, Crush, aka Chicken Guy or Chicken Dude. He's a longtime friend of mine and a polyglot with an interest in minority and lesser studied languages. He also runs HypeLearn, where you can learn languages with bilingual texts. All right, and Crush, welcome. It's good to finally put a face <laughs> to the name or the, the names. I think I've known you by uh, like three different names over the years um, yeah. across various language learning things. I think for languages, I've mostly used Crush. So, I think but, on Memrise uh, and maybe on. Oh, um, yeah. Memrise, I have Chicken GitHub, Dude. You have Chicken Guy and Chicken Dude. Yeah. Yeah. Um, cool. Well, do you want to go ahead and introduce yourself to the people who may not know who you are? Tell, tell them a little uh, about your background in the language community as well as your background with languages. Sure. So, I'm Crush. Um, I got started in my first language a long time ago in middle school. We did uh, three years of Latin and I thought that was the coolest thing ever. I'm, I never really expected to speak a foreign language, but I just loved Latin. I thought it was really cool. Um, and when I was maybe 11, we went to Germany once and that was my first experience meeting people that didn't speak English all the time. And after that, I really wanted to learn German. So that was my second language in high school. I did three years of German. And uh, it's kind of funny. I guess the languages that I studied in school are probably the languages I'm the weakest in. But uh, after German, I started with Spanish. Um, using Platiquemos, which is still my favorite course ever. And after about it's a year- It's one of my of... favorites too. Oh, it's great. Um, yeah, if if all uh, self-study courses could be as in-depth <laughs> as Platiquemos, we would have an army of fluent people. Yeah. I will say so... it didn't really cover the two forms. Um, so at the time when I did Platiquemos, I, didn't supplement it with immersion like I should have. So I showed up in Mexico quite competent at outputting with a very narrow range of vocab and yeah. absolutely no command of the two form. So for me, I did platicamos for about a nine months, I guess. Mm -hmm. And then I went to Spain and I lived in Spain for two years. And you lived uh, in Basque country, right? Yeah, that was later. Um, later. Okay. I didn't, when I got to Spain, I didn't realize that people spoke anything other than Spanish there. And that was kind of what opened my eyes to non larger languages, I guess. Um, but I got there and it took me about a week, I guess, just speaking with people before I felt comfortable. Um, and then after that, when I was in Spain, I read a lot. I probably read like a book every two or three days. I'd spend basically all of my money at the secondhand bookshops that have like 50 cent books and I just buy 10 of them or something. And uh, so I read very intensively and I did intensive reading for the first like five or six books. So I noted down every single word that I didn't know. Um, and then I looked it up and I, I made word lists and I tried, uh, um, I guess it was mostly word lists that I used uh, the Iverson style word list, if anybody's familiar. And then um, the Iverson was, style word list, we'll have to put that in the, um, the, the box. I forget the description box below <laughs> uh, because so the Iverson word list method, Iverson is a Danish polyglot who's also uh, an old head. As we say, he's sort of been in the uh, the scene for many, many years. He was an old head when I came onto the scene like 13 years ago, back yep. on the How to Learn Any Language forums. Yeah, that's where I learned about him. And I picked up a lot of good 
advice, like when I was getting started learning languages. Uh, and while I was in Spain, I started French and German. Initially, I wanted to do basically the main languages. I wanted to do French, German, Spanish, and then like I also figs, wanted to basically. do Russian. Basically figs, but replacing Italian with Russian. Okay. Uh, and in Spain, I did uh, the FSI courses for French and German intensively. So that was when I still had a lot of energy. I did about three hours a day of each um, of FSI. Different when you're of, old. Yeah. <laughs> and while I, when I first got there, I wasn't, um, I wasn't working, but then I started teaching English. And when I taught English, I walked to all of my classes. I didn't have money for a bus or anything. So uh, when I was walking to class, I would do FSI. So it would take me like 40 minutes to walk to the different students' classes. So I'd have 40 minutes going to class one, another 40 minutes to class two, and so on. So I had a lot of just downtime that I used for FSI. And so, so when it comes to your, your language background, um, I know that Cole, aka Hulk, for those of you who know him from the Discord, praises your Spanish. So Cole went to school in Spanish, did a, an you know, a higher degree in Spanish, and speaks quite good Spanish. Um, and for him to say that you're better than him is quite the praise. I think. <laughs> and I know that you're very humble, so that's okay. But in addition to Spanish, um, you have quite the repertoire of languages. And not only is it a wide repertoire, it's a deep repertoire. So you get beyond the basics. So um, in addition to Spanish, German, French, you've also got Basque. Notably, you mod a Basque server. You lived in Basque country. Um, I believe you've got some degree of, of competency in uh, Mandarin and Cantonese. Um, Japanese is your white whale, if I understand it. It's the one that you've struggled with the most. You hate the writing yeah. system and a uh, whole bunch of other nitpicks with the language. Um, and you're also the Kichwa guy. You, uh, you know, you have this project of Kichwa conversations where you, I don't know, you, you sort of helped build a uh, hundred transcribed Kichwa conversations with audio um, for the, the Kichwa learning community. Yep. Uh, and yeah. in addition to all that, you've also built a whole bunch of cool tools over the years. So you're, you're sort of a programmer, um, so you've built tools to repurpose audio courses like Glossica. You built uh, Nativo. And um, yeah, a whole bunch of stuff. You used to help maintain courses on Memrise. You've sort of given a whole bunch to the community over the past. How long have you been language learning? 15 years. I started Spanish, I think, in 2007. OK. So yeah since about 2007 and yeah a lot of my languages are more passive the languages that i speak the best are generally the ones that had fsi courses um so you could surely so, help but yeah so spanish and mandarin are probably my strongest languages and then uh basque is pretty decent and I also really enjoyed Esperanto, but I haven't used that quite as much in the past few years. Um, but Do you I've think been... that having lived in Spain and having lived in China affected your output ability in those languages and as to why they're so strong? Absolutely. Uh, so for me, in Spain, I was basically... I guess in both places. In Spain, I was in a monolingual Spanish environment. And in uh, China, after the first three years, I was in a monolingual. Uh, basically, everything was in Mandarin. Uh, for the first three years, it was mostly English for me. After, after about two years, my Mandarin started to get to the point where it was strong enough that it was easier for me to talk with my friends in Mandarin than English. So or between years two and three, things started to shift to Mandarin. And then um, by the time I left, 
it was basically 100% Mandarin. Um, so, so even... What has kept you in the language learning game so long? Since 2007, it's now 2023. Uh, I guess, I think at some point I stopped learning languages because of some sort of usefulness that I saw in them. I just fell in love with languages and language learning in general. And then there were just, I'd hear about a language that for me, I really got interested in kind of marginalized languages, um, uh, languages which like, like Basque, I guess, for Basque and Catalan, they had kind of rougher histories. Uh, and uh, that's, I don't know, as somebody's, like in Spanish, more of like an acrata, like kind of interested in like communities taking care of communities versus individuals like really got into these kind of regional languages and uh, I think that's kind of what really drove my interest I'd pick up a larger language like for me learning Mandarin led me into Cantonese and Shanghainese and learning Spanish led me into Basque and Catalan and uh, Galician. Um, and Spanish also led me into Quechua uh, on the other side of the uh, ocean. But um, I don't know. I've just got you, these. So with regarding the, um, the sort of marginalized languages, um, would you incur what 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 do you feel about like learning them versus learning um, sort of a, a high support language? So languages that have support at say the national level or at the international level, things like Spanish versus say Quechua. Um, um, so I, I feel like a lot of refolders learn languages that are like national languages that have a lot of support. And it's a totally different ball game, I imagine, learning something like Quechua. Yeah, so in my mind, I forget where, if this is something I heard from somebody, but I mean, if you learn a language with a hundred million speakers versus a language with a hundred speakers, in the end, like in English, I maybe talk with 10 people, 10 different people over the course of a month, I have like 10 main people. There's really just, I really just need one or two people, like one or two friends to really make the language worthwhile. Um, so when I, basically whenever I meet somebody that speaks another language, it's always, a really strong temptation to try to learn their language, especially, um, especially if they speak a language which is less, uh, lesser studied, lesser not like Quechua across the different dialects has like six million speakers. It's not a small language, but it's not something that you're going to really That's find 16 online, million, right? Not six million. Um, maybe uh, I've focused on Southern Quechua, which I think is here. Yeah. Like we tend to call these small languages family. in the language learning community, but we really mean lesser studied. Uh, let's see here. How many speakers in Quechua? Okay. Yeah. You're right. It's about six, eight to 10 million speakers. If you include the whole, uh, sort of dialect cluster. Yeah, um, so Southern Quechua is mostly mutually intelligible, but uh, the different, you have Southern, Central, and Northern, those are, Northern and Southern, oddly enough, are closer to each other, but the Central Quechua is completely you know, Vietnamese is the same way. 
Central Vietnamese in the mountains is very divergent versus the uh, the lowland dialects in the north and the south. Yeah. Um, so learning these languages, you know, um, with with Quechua, we've talked about this. You've had to get into like um, like folk stories and folk songs, but then you've also had to pay and make your own graded material because the material, you know, it, there just isn't a lot out there to get a footing in the language. Yeah. Um, I guess that's another thing that kind of inspires me is being being able to make resources. Like for Basque, I had the first two thousand uh, the first two thousand sentences of the Classica course translated, and I wanted to get them recorded as well. But by the time I had them translated, I didn't really need them anymore. Just. Um, it's also interesting for these smaller languages. Uh, I'm sure you know Alan R. King. He's a big linguist in Basque, and he also was a, kind of a promoter of, I think he called them tiny languages or something. But uh, he made a bunch of really high quality resources for learning Basque. And on top of that, they're in English. So I think the best courses aren't always for the largest languages. Like Asimil has the Catalan course, which Catalan isn't really a small language. You can go to Barcelona and find people who speak it all over. But um, sometimes these smaller languages have people creating kind of more passionate projects. Uh, and that's something I've seen in Quechua, in Basque, in Catalan. How about and... Filipino, which is not a small language, but I feel like there are quite a few passion projects for Tagalog out there. Yeah, so Tagalog is one of the, was one of the biggest surprises for me. Um, I wasn't expecting there to be such high quality resources to learn it, but. Tagalog.com, learning Tagalog.com and learning Tagalog.com were the two things that just completely surprised me. So. I, you know, if every language had a dictionary like Tagalog.com, fluency would be inevitable for, for most people. Yep. <laughs> so that's, I'm trying to get something similar like that for Hawaiian. But... Yeah. Now, that's a, you've got a lot of these different projects. So you've got, I don't know if it's HipLearn or HypeLearn. Uh, um, HypeLearn. But... HypeLearn. Uh, and then I guess you're working on sort of a, well, I don't know if it's you, but you and, and your, your circle of people are working on a Hawaiian sort of assisted reader, like a link type thing. Yeah, it's mostly my wife. Uh, she's been doing it as a sort of practice project. And I told her to make a practice project that I'm going to use. And uh, okay. I've been kind of making an Android version of it. So. All right. Very cool. Now, uh, Regarding your Tagalog journey, I used to tell people that you got very good without doing any flashcards. Um, because when you started Tagalog, you didn't use flashcards. But I think at some point you must have changed because we were talking the other day and you mentioned that you, you've started using flashcards. You do like 15 a day in Filipino. No, I do five, well, 15 reviews altogether. It's okay. about five cards, five new cards. Okay. Um, at, so in the beginning, all of the words that I was picking up were pretty high frequency. Mm -hmm. And it got to a point where I'd have maybe, according to Tagalog.com, it'd be like 97% comprehension. And the words that I was coming across, I would see once or twice, maybe throughout two or three books that I'd read. So uh, I've kind of slowly gone Basically, where if I've seen a word maybe three or four times and I don't remember it, then I'll just add it to Anki. And uh, I've been adding them just as sentence cards, which are easier for me to recall. There's more context do you, behind them. Do you mine them directly from Tagalog.com? Uh, I mine them from books. So it's a, I made a script basically where I've 
take the word, the new words from Tagalog.com, which has the word and the definition, and I pass in the word that I'm learning, and then I paste in a sentence, and then right. it it goes to a uh, like a TTS, a text to speech, uh, from Google to make a audio version of the sentence, just because it's more interesting, I guess, even if the audio is really bad, it still feels less painful to go through them. But... Right. Interesting. So, yeah. So when did you yeah. start incorporating uh, flashcards into your study? Because I'm I... definitely guilty on this very podcast, having praised your, your progress in Tagalog over the course of about a year from just... Really it was a, after about a year, yeah. Okay, because initially so you had this like method, a month maybe, yeah, where you would sort of take graded material, and you would read it over and over. So the first time, the first pass might take you thirty minutes, then you would read it again. It would take ten minutes, and then again it would take five minutes. So you still had repetition, but you were avoiding mm -hmm. flashcards. So you were just repeating, uh, sort of intensive reading. Yep, that was when I was going through the conversations, which I think is the perfect size for reading something several times. It's like a five to six minute conversation. So it's maybe, I don't know, three or four pages of text. And uh, I think that's probably my favorite way of building vocabulary. If I had, uh, interlinear text for everything, I would uh, definitely prefer to do that. But um, I kind of felt like I wasn't picking up vocabulary as quickly as I was in the beginning because it was just getting to very low frequency vocab. And uh, outside of Esperanto, I guess Tagalog is the first language that you've learned that is majority non-native. So out of the 80 million speakers, only 30 million are, are native speakers of the language. What has that been like? Um, um, it's been kind of interesting. For example, there's a Wattpad story that I looked at once and the uh, author wrote it in a mixture of Tagalog, Japanese, and English. And at the top, he had a note saying, please excuse the errors. I don't speak Tagalog natively. I don't speak English natively, and I don't speak Japanese. And uh, I thought that was kind of an interesting choice. And Tagalog for me is something that usually I would have started Tagalog to get to as sort of a foothold into another language, um, mm -hmm. but the people that I know speak Tagalog natively. So that's, it's kind of stopped there. Um, Ethnic Tagalogs hit different when they speak Filipino. Um, I had a roommate once who was a native speaker of the Southern dialect. Um, so he was from Laguna and ethnic Tagalog. And uh, he pulled out words that were either native or descended from Malay. Whereas somebody who learned it as a lingua franca might use the English or the Spanish. And I remember, in addition to grammatical differences, being hit by like a, all this obscure vocab, you know? <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, he was my language partner. We met on a, a language exchange site and we talked for about a year and we decided to room together for a while. And, uh, one thing that's very interesting to me, having spoken Filipino for so long, is when I read Wattpad, which is, as we know, sort of the uh, the master library of Tagalog content, uh, I can usually guess where the author is from, if they're a native Tagalog or not, based on how they phrase things. Um, in terms of like affix usage, word usage, so on and so forth. And it's a very fun experience, I think. Yeah, I've done similar things with Spanish, trying to figure out where somebody's from by the by the uh, words they use, or 
like if you see Chilean slang or Peruvian slang or, or things like Argentinian that. Argentinian slang. Yep. <laughs> All right. So, yeah, I think you've wowed the Filipino community um, with your progress. Very dedicated. And you're sort of an anomaly because uh, you don't live in the Philippines and you're not, uh, you don't have any Filipino family, which in my experience tend to be the two biggest groups of Filipino learners. And here you yeah. are in uh, the south of the USA, uh, just chugging away and making really good progress. <laughs> I guess for me, it wasn't a huge time commitment. It was for the first year, I guess it was about 30 to 60 minutes a day of initially it was uh, going through the learning Tagalog course and then going through the uh, conversations, which I've really come to enjoy those things. I, I used the uh, Ali Richards has a set of Cantonese conversations, which I found out. I wish I knew that uh, I don't know what it was called then, language tools, language IO, OP lingo. It's had a bunch of different names. But, it's uh, now called Language Crush, and, unrelated to your name. Yep. So <laughs> every time I uh, share the uh, Quechua conversations, which I've uploaded there, people think it's my site. But um, I've, in the past, I don't know, maybe two months, I guess, I've started trying to incorporate more audio immersion. Um, I've also started doing a meeting with a tutor, usually once or twice a week, trying to build, uh, trying to build some speaking ability. And uh, that part has been going much more slowly than, uh, than building reading comprehension. Yeah. Um... There's a lot to talk about in this podcast, you know, and I don't want to like, I don't want to isolate the listeners and just talk about Filipino because that's what I want to talk about. <laughs> I could, but I don't want to do that. Um, so I'm going to shift gears here and I'm going to ask you, you have been involved in a lot of uh, giving back to the community, you know, with your projects, you know, your GitHub stuff, uh, managing community decks on Memrise, uh, so on and so forth. One question that the community had for you was, if you had an infinite amount of money, how would you fund something for languages? What would you do? What would you build or have built? So I would build two things for each language. I would build an FSI course for every single language. And I think I've talked about it with you before, but um, I really like Glossica and the conversations. Um, the like Tagalog conversations or Cantonese conversations from Language Crush. Uh, and and uh, to, to, to clear that up for people, Language Crush by Leo Smith. Um, he has a series of usually about 100 conversations of just sort of like people talking. They're, they're usually yep. a couple minutes long over it's a variety of It's usually six topics. minutes. Yep. And they're transcribed and... Uh, and they're 100% free. So, <laughs> but uh, I'd love to kind of combine the two. Basically, you'd have something similar to Glassica, which would also have grammar explanations for things. And you would have uh, basically go through a set of sentences over the course of a week that would prepare you for a conversation. And then you'd listen to that conversation during the next week, you just review it and then uh, learn the next week's sentences to prepare you for the next set of, uh, basically the next conversation. So I think it's a great way to build listening and speaking skills. Um, though my favorite course style of all is that drill-based FSI style course. So that would be you my know, first choice. <laughs> I do not have the tolerance that I had for that seven years ago when I did it with Spanish. Um, seven years ago, 
I was probably a hundred pounds skinnier. I had a lot more energy and, uh, I had a lot more tolerance for that sort of thing. Um, it's now a I'm very, con now I'm very content to just grind vocab and memorize and read graded stuff until I get good. So for me, it depends on my goals in the language. If I'm just going for passive skills, I would much rather just read. I'd rather go through SMU and uh, just kind of have fun with the language. But for me, Spanish and Mandarin, for example, I was, well, Spanish was the first language that I really learned to fluency. So I really wanted just to, I was really motivated. So I did about three hours a day of FSI and then uh, I would do some vocabulary study. I'd try to do language exchanges. I'd hang out on shared talk all day and uh, just try yeah, to well, get as much Spanish. And as I, I say can. that I don't have tolerance <laughs> for this, and I'm I'm actually kind of lying. I've been spending about two hours a day for the past month on Swahili, so doing memorized vocab, <laughs> vocab. So I guess uh, I guess if the spark is still there, right? You find a language yep. that really speaks to your soul. And for me, the best part about these drill courses is you can do them outside. So I would go for long walks and get my exercise in for the day and learn a language. So. All right. Now let's see here. I want to see what the community had questions for you. So, oh, this is a good one. What is your advice on managing multiple languages? Because we've actually talked about this. So right now, um, I have been working on a schedule where I do Swahili in the morning, then I do Filipino in the evening, which is a lot easier. I just basically read. Um, but I have other languages that I would like to maintain. So right now, the only Spanish I use is when I do refunds or I help answer questions because uh, I do the support for the refill website. That's like the extent of my Spanish. And I've sort of become like a heritage speaker. Like that's pretty much all I <laughs> I do. It's a very narrow range of the language. I, I wouldn't really even call it maintenance. And I myself am curious, how do you maintain your, your sort of vast repertoire of languages? So for some languages, like with my wife, we speak mostly Mandarin at home uh, with a mix of uh, Spanish, English, and Cantonese. But uh, for most of my languages, it's been kind of one of my biggest regrets. Once I get fairly decent at a language, it stops feeling like I'm working at it and I'm just enjoying it. And usually when I hit that point, I'm like, okay, it's time to go to the next one. And then it kind of gets pushed to the side. So for me, Spanish has been a bit of an anomaly because I learned it, I feel like to a relatively high level. I haven't used it very actively in probably 10 years, but I'll just, Every once in a while, I'll come across a book that sounds interesting, or there'll be a show on Netflix. And you, we'll with Spanish, that. you get into actual literature. So I'm kind of guilty of reading light novels and what that, but you get into like Cien Años de Soledad and, and things like that. Like you read actual literature. So that was one of the biggest things that surprised me about Spanish is uh, I just really fell in love with the classic literature in Spanish in Spain, well, in Spanish in general, but I've read of classic literature, I've read more Spanish authors. And in English, I didn't really enjoy very many older, like 1800 authors other than Mark Twain. But in Spanish, I just really get pulled into all of those stories. One of the, the funny things about Mark Twain I, like you, used to be an English teacher. And I had a student come to me and say, I want to read the classics. Can you help me work through Mark Twain? And um, it'd probably been the first time in 20 years that I had looked at a Mark Twain book. And it was written in this sort of lower south, uh, or sorry, upper south, lower Midwest variety of English. Um, and 
you know, it was kind of hard to read even for a native. <laughs> uh, you know, they sort of sounded like 1800s, you know, Missouri people. Yeah. So, I guess for for me, at some point, you just kind of get certain habits. Like for me, speaking Basque, I've, I'm pretty active in the Basque Discord server that we have. So I answer a lot of questions. We'll talk in Basque. And I've got a lot of Basque books, and I've kind of regretted not really reading them since I've pretty decent at like everyday conversation, but starting to notice that reading literature is getting harder again when you get outside it's of Basque literature and standard Basque. Because Basque is one of those languages that's sort of like a, a dialect cluster that may not yeah, so, really be mutually intelligible, right? Yeah, so standard Basque is kind of interesting because you've got this standardized language, but it's much broader. Um, so depending on where the author's from, you might see more of this certain word or uh, like maybe some, especially when you get into like Ika, um, which is, it's basically a completely separate verb conjugation for speaking with somebody at a more familiar level. It's not the same thing, but it's kind of similar to that two versus usted, uh, which uh, Basque doesn't really distinguish between. They've basically just got one U form, but there's a separate form like that- Like sort of like honorific type thing? Except it's kind except of it's more- familiar. Yeah, but the way it's done is the entire verb system changes. So it's not just like, you have a word for you and then a word for familiar you. Every single verb that you use changes. Mm -hmm. And the way this is used differs somewhat between different dialects. And you can see some of those things. It's actually sometimes. really interesting um, because it's interesting how languages across the world handle registers. Um, so fa famously, you know, Korean and Japanese have these honorific conjugations for verbs. Uh, and Javanese has a whole different set of vocab. They've got three levels, depending on the, the, the you know, the, the familiarity and formality respect. Um, but in the Philippines, um, Bicol, for example, has an angry register, where they have a whole separate set of vocab uh, for being angry. Yeah. Nice. Uh, so like the normal word for dog would change to a whole unrelated word when you're <laughs> angry, which is just, how does that happen? It's, it's very interesting to me. Yeah. I've really enjoyed just learning the ways languages express things in different ways. Like for Basque, I love the verb system. It's, when you start learning Basque, you see this like chart of different ways you conjugate the verb and it's like, I don't know, probably a thousand different forms, but it's very regular and systematic. And Basque, the verb tells you like for Spanish, you don't have to put the, the subject. You can just say like hablo and you know that it's I speak. In Basque, it will also tell you It'll tell you the subject, the direct object, and the indirect object. That's all crammed into the verb. So you can say these really interesting things in one word. Like Swahili, I don't know about the the different types of objects, but Swahili has something similar where the the verb conjugation contains the subject, the object, the tense slash aspect. Um, yeah, and when I started learning Quechua, I noticed that Quechua has basically the same system as Basque. It's a little less developed, or there are fewer forms, but it's something that I wasn't expecting to see. And 
There you go. How do you feel about the Filipino uh, focus system or voice system? Where yeah, that's one of the know. things that I really enjoyed about learning Tagalog. It was just a, a new way of seeing things that I hadn't seen before, and in a lot of ways, it kind of made me think of Basque because the verb tells you the verb can, can tell, tell you if it's like an indirect object or yeah it has a lot of extra information that you don't have in english for example so and it, it sort of tells you information about the noun as well uh, mm -hmm. so you know um people tend to obsess over cases they're like oh these cases are so cool but filipino sort of marks case on the verb like you've got a locative verb right and like yeah. uh lagyan versus ilagay right so like lagyan would be locative so that means that the uh the noun taking the ang case right would be sort of yeah. the location of the action and uh there's something called reason voice right like where the reason or the because the why is baked into the verb um and one thing that gets a lot of people when they come to Austronesian languages is it kind of feels like the whole language is spoken in the passive from an English speaker <laughs> point of view. You yeah, know, um, that was one thing that took a while to wrap my head around is like the concept of well, basically what the ang is. Like initially it, it was just the in my head. That's how I would translate it. And took a while to figure out just basically you've got the different parts. I, I think in learning Tagalog, they're talking about like you've got the ang, nang, and then uh, you've got like the sa stuff. So just learning how those worked was one of the uh, initial difficulties that really tripped me up. So yeah, you have a lot of metalinguistic awareness because you've sort of studied so many different languages over the past, since 20, you know, 2007. Yeah, and with Basque, for example, uh, the way you do relative clauses is very similar to the way they're done in Mandarin. So I think a lot of people have struggled with that, whereas I didn't struggle with it in Basque. I struggled with it in Mandarin when I first came across. Like, you'd have, uh, I saw that man. Like, instead of saying the man that I saw, you'd have like, I saw Wakanda the nigger. And then uh, Basque basically does the exact same thing. So when you learn one thing um, and it's similar in another language, it carries over. Yeah, even if the words are different or they're used slightly differently, uh, sometimes it's just easier to wrap your mind around it. And f I guess for me, after learning Spanish, bef before I learned Spanish and was able to feel comfortable speaking with people and reading and understanding things in Spanish. I didn't really think it was possible to learn a language and really internalize it. But once I realized that you just kind of take it through, you have to go through, uh, it just realized that it eventually leads to where you're trying to get to. Um, things don't make sense in the beginning, but two months later, they just suddenly makes sense. So that was one of the things that really helped me with later languages is just realizing that it's not going to make sense right now. But if you don't stop, it'll eventually make sense. And uh, one thing that I really like, in terms of learning multiple languages is shared vocabulary. Um, you know, uh, how do you how, how do you feel your languages have interacted with each other in terms of vocab? So like, obviously, with Filipino, there's a whole bunch of Spanish loans. Um, 
so on and so forth. Uh, yeah, so for me, that's what made French and Italian more difficult because, well, and the same with Portuguese, I felt like I knew so much of the language already that I didn't really feel that motivated to put much effort into it. Uh, so your Portuguese I, is funny. I remember talking to you one time and uh, you were looking for Dune in Spanish. <laughs> and I think you unintentionally bought the Portuguese audiobook and you said, frick it, I'm going to just listen to it. And um, you, you listened to Dune, I think in Portuguese unintentionally. Yeah. So Portuguese has been a weird one. I've really enjoyed it. There have been a lot of, especially from Brazil, there are a lot of content creators that have find their stuff really interesting. They have a lot of interesting projects. I see Brazilians all over in like Discord servers I'm in, in forums I'm in. It seems like my yeah, interests in there. Yeah, I think a lot of Brazilians have similar interests to me. Um, but I tell I, you, the real just, content in Portuguese is Angola and Mozambique. You know. Well, the other thing is there's a big Esperanto movement in Brazil. So when I was uh, really working on Esperanto, I speak with a lot of people from Brazil. But uh, I was watching something about native Esperanto speakers, and they included two children who were from Brazil in the uh, yeah. the documentary. Yeah. I've watched a couple of those, and it's interesting to see the the way that uh, the the children view the language. Like if I forget what, uh, like one of the examples was uh, one of the kids forgot the word for like to go to the bathroom, and uh, the word they used was malmanji. It's like mal is to do the opposite. Reverse eat. Manji. Yeah, so it's like to reverse eat was how they said to go to the bathroom, so. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Man, I tell you, you have had quite the journey when it comes to language stuff. Um, so what is your, how, how would you advise someone learning tone? Uh, that's one of the questions the community had for you, being that you are competent in Mandarin and to Cantonese, or, you know, in Cantonese to some degree. What would what would your take there be for acquiring tone? So what I've recommended to everybody who's asked me about Mandarin pronunciation in general is to do the first two units. I think it's the first two units of the FSI, FSI. course in Mandarin. It basically drills the pronunciation. It tells you where your tongue, what position your tongue should be in. And after I did that, I couldn't speak Mandarin well at all, but I would always get comments on my pronunciation that say your Mandarin is very broken, but it sounds really good. So I think uh, FSI really gives you a lot of work drilling. Think essentially you should drill tones. Yep. I, I would just use the course well, from the FSI. Method. <laughs> it's not totally vanilla refold, right? Because you don't, stray away from textbooks or traditional grammar study type stuff like drills. Yeah, I really enjoy grammar. So my general method that I've used is hit grammar hard in the beginning. Um, generally over the course of like maybe six months to a year, I'll hit grammar really hard, pick up the first one to 2000 words, and then while I'm doing that, I'll also try to find ways to use the language, whether that's speaking with people or reading. And then once I feel comfortable with the grammar, I just basically spend as much time as I can listening, reading, watching, speaking. So how, how does content compare across languages? So, uh, I'm most familiar with Filipino, given that a lot of content is like amateur, um, amateur books from Wattpad, amateur stuff on YouTube, um, versus like uh, 
well-polished classic literature from say Spanish. How does that compare? You know, like, um, I imagine it's different, you know, I'm, I'm sort of dipping my toes into Africa right now. And I'm curious as to see what sort of content I'll get into. Uh, yeah, so definitely for Spanish, there is a plethora of choices. There's a, you have a variety of different, uh, even different continents, different countries that you can pick from. And there's so much interesting stuff. For Tagalog, it's been a bit different. I've struggled to find some captivating stories at times but at the same time there are so many i mean yeah there's actually a whole bunch to read in tagalog um when i, when I was looking at like swahili stuff i found like 200 books or so um that were translated and i found a couple of stories on wattpad but it's not a whole bunch uh, compared to, say, Filipino, where you open up Wattpad and there's thousands of pages of uh, different books to read. Yeah. One of the things that surprised me was Basque has a very strong amount of literature. I think maybe Spanish people in general are very fond of reading. They're very, yeah, because I've seen a whole bunch of Catalan literature as well. Yep. So Basque and Catalan have a very strong literature. A literary tradition and for both of those i've never really run out of things to read in mandarin i really struggled to find content that captivated me i ended up watching a lot of wuxia dramas and that was the closest to uh captivating content. like something i could binge on <laughs> but for literature i didn't find a whole lot that really grabbed me. I liked uh, That's interesting. I liked some I, I stuff. I feel yeah. like a lot of people are very into the uh the Chinese web novels. You know. Yeah, and I was I could never really get into it. For Cantonese, I feel like the cinema for Cantonese is very good and I've really enjoyed watching uh just a lot of police shows and uh kung fu films and and those sorts of things i really know in addition to films and reading books for the languages that have it you do other things as well like um you know you recommended fire emblem to me and i had mm. no clue that fire emblem had so much dialogue i actually played through one of the ones on the game boy advance uh in spanish yeah. and i was very pleasantly surprised by the amount of dialogue kind of felt like I was reading a book. Yeah, so I live, I'm a big fan of JRPGs. That was really the inspiration for me to learn Japanese. I wanted to be able to play video games and convince myself that I was studying. And um, a lot of my favorite JRPGs, like uh, Legend of Lagaya and Final Fantasy VII or Chrono Trigger. I've played these languages in other languages that I was studying, like Spanish. Well, I've played pretty much all of them in Spanish. Some of them in French, German, Italian, basically the figs languages, uh, which were the easiest to find. Um, and yeah, I, I think there's a lot of ways to find content for especially larger languages. But even, again, Basque has dubs of a, a lot of my favorite cartoons as a kid. I watched Scooby-Doo and Basque. I watched Avatar. I watched Rugrats and Basque. Um, that was a lot of my early immersion in Basque was just cartoons that I watched as a kid. Yeah, it's very interesting how uh, well-supported stuff is in Spanish regional languages. Um, yeah. You know, there's... Dragon Ball Z in Galician, for example. Yeah. So that's, you know, very interesting. Yeah. Because I, I think people and, going into a language that has like a hundred, you know, like a million speakers or something, they don't expect there to be a lot of content. Because interestingly enough, what I have noticed over the years 
is that speaker size has absolutely frick all to do with content availability. You know, there are regional languages in China, India, the Philippines with 300, you know, with 30 million speakers, 50 million speakers yeah. that have less content than something like Norwegian with 5 million speakers. So it, yeah. it really has very little to do with population size. Yeah. And as I said before, you really just need a handful of people to make the language come alive for you. Um, it's definitely much easier with Quechua. It's been difficult. I've had to go to sources that I, resources that I would not normally go to. Um, and in the end, I've ended up. Uh, Is that stuff like missionary stuff? Yeah. <laughs> Yep. Yeah. Um, I, I, you know, I've had people approach me in an official capacity for like refold coaching. And uh, it's like, oh, I'm learning Ojibwe. And I'm like, ah, man, I'm going to have to say like folk tales, but also like Jehovah's Witnesses Watchtower. They've got, they translate yeah. Watchtower into Ojibwe. You know, like, I mean, you got to take what you can. Or find a way to make it yourself, which. Right, which you have done. I've been lucky for Shanghainese. I was lucky to find someone that would help Shanghainese me translate. Spec. Yeah, I've had them translate the Mandarin uh, sentences from Glossika into Shanghainese, and they did and that very cheaply. Because you speak Mandarin. Um, you're also able to use Mandarin language sources to, mm -hmm. you know, you've got a couple of, I think, Shanghainese from Mandarin textbooks. Yeah. And uh, I guess what else? Um, we've had people do similar things for, for Hyplern. We've had them write stories for us in Basque and Quechua. And I've been trying to use that... Uh, Basically, the money that would come in from that would be used for paying for translators and also for creating content, especially for smaller languages. Like you Ketra sort of, ask. Um, you and your business partner use sort of the popular languages, Vigs and such, yeah. to fund and smaller surprisingly languages. enough, Dutch. Dutch has been one of the largest sellers for us. <laughs> Interesting. Is that because your business partner is Dutch or is it I don't some know. other reason? I, I wonder if interlinear texts are just more popular among Dutch learners, but generally the top sellers are like Dutch, Spanish, and French. Very so. cool. <laughs> now, uh, Crush, we're about at time, uh, but before we go, uh, anything you want to say, any takeaways, any words of wisdom any parting words uh sure for me i would say if it's available if you have an fsi basic course in your language and you can dedicate two hours a day to it i would say go for it it'll be if your goal is to speak don't be afraid of drills um also when you go to get away from the larger languages or more commonly studied languages, you've, you get into a kind of a more personal area. Um, so when I would go for language exchanges in Quechua or Basque, um, things would start out in Spanish or English. And then the moment that you switch to Quechua or to Basque, they basically just say, oh, I'm going to teach you Quechua. I'm going to teach you Basque. You need to learn this language. They just get really excited. And that's probably been one of the driving things behind my journey is just feeling, I don't know. There's that Gandhi quote where you uh, speak to someone in a language they know. Yeah. And then their brain. You, once you get to their language, you speak to their them. language, it's reaching their heart. And you can definitely feel this when you 
especially in bilingual, trilingual, or multilingual communities, once you speak to somebody in the language that they grew up speaking, something switches, something changes, and it's really gratifying. It's really great to feel that. So don't be afraid to, even if you don't have, I don't know, Netflix in that language, um, it's going to be rewarding in other ways. Right. And thank you so much for coming on. Yeah. Thanks for having me. I want to thank you for listening to this episode of the Refold podcast. If you're watching the live premiere, you're in luck. Right as it ends, we have an after party over on the Refold Central Discord server. Come join us by using refold.link forward slash join and chat about the episode. If you enjoyed the podcast and would like to hear more, you can find older episodes to listen to on YouTube and Spotify. Let us know what you thought about the video by liking and leaving a comment below. Do you have suggestions for upcoming visitors or requests for particular topics? Please feel free to reach out to me on Discord at georgepig hashtag 5413 or via email at clayton at refold.la. Thank you all for watching and or listening, and I'll see you next week.